Do you know what time it is? It's time for the Workforce Show, where you will learn the latest news about employment trends, current opportunities, and innovative strategies for managing a career on WERA 96.7 FM. Hello, uh, this is Cindy Gern of the Workforce Show. Uh, we bring to you uh, the best uh, of, that we can find of uh, people who are engrossed and involved in the energy or the technical energy, uh, technical fields. And uh, today we have such a guest, uh, Zuleika Strong. Uh, welcome, Zuleika. Thank you, Cindy. Thank you for having me on your show today. It was, it's our pleasure, and uh, and I'm going to learn a lot about copper, which I didn't know uh, anything about copper before uh, <laughs> uh, before you. And uh, so, but before I start, I just want to say a couple of words for our sponsors, uh, uh, Looking Glass Cyber. We want to thank them for sponsoring our radio show and uh, the Scientific Logic. That's another sponsor, and of course, Fairfax City. And if you haven't visited Fairfax City, it's a must. It's a it's an island of tranquility in the middle of the city, and so middle of our environment. So I hope you can can uh, get there to uh, to enjoy it too. But let's see, Zuleika, uh, you are a, uh, a copper expert. I'm an energy expert for the copper industry, <laughs> so I wear two hats. Oh, really? What are they? Well, um, in my role, I um, back when I started with the agency, with the association about 10 years ago, um, they brought me on to create an energy office for um, for the industry, for based really looking at the North America platform first, but then how it affects the global copper industry as well. So what I do in my job, it's really exciting and interesting, is it's an intersection between um, a lot of the growth and the transition in the clean energy market, such as renewables, electric vehicles, energy storage, energy efficiency, um, and looking at how that electrical infrastructure is going to be affected by some of these policy changes. So things like grid integration, transformers, motors, wires, and really advancing the position of the copper industry and creating that intersection between energy and the copper industry and giving the folks that are making these decisions an understanding of, as well as the policy, the policy measures and also the developers and, and some of this infrastructure, where copper intersects, the reliability, the resiliency benefits, the conductivity, and the um, energy efficiency gains. Uh, copper is the uh, most highly conductive metal, and it really does play a key role in the clean energy market as far as not only providing that um, high conductivity, which creates greater efficiency of um, electricity, as well as uh, providing, um, you know, a key role in, in, in all of its sustainability efforts and um, in the clean energy transition. And so my role and why they brought me on is um, I actually started off as a um, an energy regulator working for the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. And then I represented the electric utilities for a number of years on energy regulatory issues as well as um, uh, congressional issues um, in energy markets. 
And so I have a really exciting opportunity to take that extensive background in policy um, and bring it from the energy markets to advance um, the goals of the copper industry. You have a you know you have a very exciting occupation. You're hands-on involved in in forefront of technology. It's all kinds of technology, but uh, but before that and go back and back and back. So like uh, your name, first of all, is so uh, interesting to me. So where what is your name? Uh, what's the origin? How did you get such a name? Uh, my family immigrated to the United States from Afghanistan when I was six years old. So my name is a comes from a Persian story about Zulaika and Yusuf. So some people may know it, but um, that's where I got my name from. That's interesting. Uh, a lot of people. I mean, I've noticed in the in the recent history that uh, people don't change their names uh, as often as they did when my. Uh, grandparents uh, came here from Armenia. <laughs> and mm-hmm. yeah, my father uh, had changed his name to George. <laughs> and so, yeah. was, and so uh, I've noticed that people yeah. take a great deal of pride in their, their names. And that's, uh, that's a good thing, yeah. I think, as well. Are you the only child? I am not. I have a younger brother. Um, and so my brother, my brother's in banking, uh, he works in the banking industry. And so and his name is Ahmed, and he didn't change his name either. So, um, you know, I mean, we've all got nicknames when we're kids, but um, it's always been so like a... So anyway, you went to Seton Hall College. Seton Hall University. Seton Hall University. Uh, what did you major in? I was a finance major in the... Um, uh, business school. And I want people to hear that because uh, law, having a law degree is uh, expected to be a, uh, a pass uh, to a lot of the occupations in technology and, and uh, in the supporting role, but other uh, in, uh, other degrees are equally as important and, and we want to, you know, we want to celebrate those degrees because nothing can be accomplished with just technical people, uh, but there is also policy and there's regulations and right I so my undergraduate degree in business uh, was in business finance from Seton Hall University as you mentioned um, and then I worked for a number of years in, in the corporate finance world for Kraft Foods uh, when I was in college I had an internship at the White House and I'll talk a little bit about that it planted um, a seed in me because I had um, worked in a lot of finance internships and that was my first time kind of being exposed to policy. So here I was after college, like most, I got my job in corporate finance and realized the one thing that kept kind of pinging in the back of my head was that I really wanted to take the lessons from the business world and also um, work in policy and, and kind of intersect uh, policy and markets. And um, when I left Craft Foods. After three years, I went to AmeriCorps, which a lot of folks, um, it was Vista, and, and now it's AmeriCorps Vista. Um, and I, it was an amazing opportunity to be able to be on the ground and see how policy decisions impact some of the um, changes that we want to see. And from there, I actually went to policy school. I went to Columbia University School of International and uh, Public Affairs, SEBA. And uh, 
I really had such a great balance between my undergraduate from Seton Hall University's finance program from the business school to uh, Columbia's program and policy. And I got an opportunity to really um, use lessons learned um, after working as well um, in the development of policy and how as policymakers and those that influence policy, which I do in, in my current position, really impact industries and growth um, in this country. And uh, so as a result of that, when I've when I finished um, when I finished policy school, uh, let me just back up a little bit. When I was in policy school, I had an opportunity to. Uh, President Clinton was had just uh, has, uh, changed offices and started building his office in New York City. And there were a few of us fellows from Columbia University that had, that helped with that transition before when it was just the office of William Jefferson Clinton when it was his post presidential office. So. I got to do that, and it was exciting before, um, and then I finished my two years of policy school and headed down to Washington, D.C. When you say policy school, you mean Columbia, right? Yes, I do, Columbia. (laughs) That's, that's, uh, lots of people don't know that policy school is a euphemism for Columbia University. So you were with with Clinton's uh, energy program, right? No, I I was working in Clinton's office, post, his post presidential office during my time at Columbia University. Um, and it was just it was just a fellowship. It was really to get um, my exposure to working on issues that were coming from very high level policy conversations and seeing how that interfaced and worked with market. And um, it was really great exposure before I left um, and finished Columbia University and went to Washington, D.C. to work for the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. So that's where I ended up with my first job in energy. So that was actually my first time working in energy. When I was at Columbia, I was studying economic policy because that, that route for me was a smarter or more succinct because I was open to different you know, policy areas. And when the opportunity presented itself with the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, FERC, um, post-graduation, it was really, I had the tools to do a lot of um, assessments from an economic lens as well as um, from a market lens. Uh, and I've always associated FERC with, uh, with nuclear energy. Is that not true? FERC is the agency that oversees the um, regulation of the transmission of electricity and uh, natural gas and oil. So any type of energy that goes across state lines, the interstate transaction of energy is is the federal uh, FERC oversees those markets. Right. Okay. So, so you, you graduated and you went to work with FERC and I mean, you had your experience with uh, AmeriCorps. So before you, you jumped into the, the big, the big pond, if you will, what did you feel, what did you see in, when you worked at the local level, when you worked with AmeriCorps about how policy affected energy uh, or uh, anything, any, 
many area of uh, where was the disconnect or where was policy being implemented in uh, effectively to represent the 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 uh, lower uh, the, the the poor rural areas across the board, et cetera. Well, when I was with AmeriCorps, I worked in Patterson, New Jersey, which is um, more of an inner city. Uh, and the work there was um, in the community development area. And um, so the, what was, to answer your question, uh, looking at um, the implementation of policy. So, you know, whether it's, um, you know, policies to support growth in a community or to address a certain population in a community when legislators make that and then there's a, um, uh, a shifting of funds and priorities, you, my opportunity in that job was seeing how those policies affected the community that I was working in. And it's really always stays in my mind now as I'm working on policies, thinking that the decisions for certain um, positions in policy, how they can affect those markets or those industries that are going to be um, going to be affected the most. So, um, as an example, uh, with respect to investments in community development for AmeriCorps when I was there, there was a, um, you know, if, if the legislators continue that focus, we had more of an opportunity to serve a greater population. If there was less focus or the policy positions changed, that would change the way that we could um, help support certain aspects of our jobs. And so, you know, there's this there's this very great responsibility when developing policy positions, which come turn into action, um, in understanding that it's not isolated, that it does impact those at different levels. So that's the exposure that that position of America gave me was that when I got into a position, like when I went to FERC, um, looking at regulations and assessing whether utilities to make investments or not, I was always thinking, okay, this isn't just a piece of writing on paper or a few pages that um, pull a position together, but it's more along the lines of how does this affect that industry? How does this affect that job market? How does this affect that utility? What does this do for the consumers that are there? So it's a very... Um, you understand the responsibility when you work at the um, nuts and bolts level, such as a position like America, where you're actually on the ground and you're seeing what impact policy positions make. I've often thought that we should do more programs uh, with a focus on policy of, of technology. The, the te technology is changing right. at such a rapid rate, and uh, policy people are, are somewhat familiar with the policy about autonomous vehicles. You know, everybody wants regulations. They want to know that it's safe to, to be on the road with autonomous vehicles. But the policy takes a long time to get into to place, is it not? I mean, is it the policy isn't that easy to implement and to, to come up with a policy that works for everybody? Right. And 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 the reason for that is because there's so many factors that play into those policy positions. So um, using your example of autonomous vehicles, you have to look at 
so many different aspects. Um, you're looking at transportation, you're looking at roads, you're looking at sensors to make sure that um, you're communicating with the vehicle. You're looking at the auto manufacturers, are they able to roll this out? You're looking at the consumers, you're looking at the city, or you're looking at the rural. There, are, I mean, those are just very, very few examples. Um, there's an extensive list. And so when you are in a position where you're developing policy, you need to get insight in each of those areas, if not more, to be able to effectively position the policy so that it presents an opportunity for the greater good. So, you know, um, there's there's a lot that goes into it. And I think that it's beyond the perspective. I think some people think that, you know, bureaucracy and policy are intercorrelated and there's aspects of that. But the most part, it's when you're in a position where you're writing a policy, you're taking in factors that are more so than in other industry groups. Um, you know, you are looking at different markets, you're looking at different populations, you're looking at geographic areas, you're looking at a very, very, very um, immense group of folks. And, you know, at the end of the day, there's a rollout for that. And so that's where um, policy does take time because you want to make sure you're effectively developing position for the opportunity across many, many And not to mention that you have to consider the the uh, people who come to you with their demands and their expectations, and you have to you know, fill that, build that into the policy. That's good for everyone. Uh, can I, can I ask you to, uh, to go back to yeah. navigating the road ahead, uh, an industry event, uh, is that was on, uh, uh electronic, ve- uh, electric vehicles, right? Yes. Yep. Can, sure. can we take that as an, as an example? First of all, what, what does copper have what interest does copper have in electro- electronic vehicles? You know, copper is a part of, uh, an immense part of the electrical infrastructure across market areas. With electric vehicles, there is about four to six times more copper than in your combustible engine vehicles. So there's a tremendous um, interest level from our industry um, in watching that market grow and supporting and monitoring policies that affect that market. So last year was the first energy summit that we've ever had in Washington, D.C. for the copper industry. I put it together, focusing on electric vehicles and bringing to that conversation um, across industries and and folks in policy. So you had at the table, we had two forums, excuse me, in that forum, we had two panels. One was focused on policymakers, so we had folks that came from state commission, we had folks that came from the federal government, we had folks that were writing policy and in in, um, positions representing their industry, Um, and then we had a second panel where we actually had the developers, so we had, um, you know, the vehicle makers uh, like Audi and BMW, we had... um, those that are building infrastructure, like Electrify America, we've had um, those that are, you know, building support, like energy storage is a huge support system for for electric vehicles. Um, we had those folks at the table. And so we had an array of conversation. And, and let me back up to the first panel. Those policymakers also included 
um, we had some think tanks in there as well, like the Atlantic Council um, and other associations like the Alliance Save Energy. So folks that are not only developing um, the cars and the infrastructure, but folks that are also helping write policy, regulate policy, monitor policy um, to help execute the electric vehicle market. So we was like, what are some of the issues? What are some of the opportunities? What are some of the advancements that we're seeing? As well as, you know, looking at things from a national rollout. I mean, this electric vehicle market is not only, um, you know, we're looking at this as a national rollout to support um, climate change, but we're also, this is a big, huge global endeavor as well for us. Yeah, I've noticed that you've commissioned, stud- you've commissioned studies, industry studies yeah. on on energy storage, solar energy, and wind energy. Uh, all of those affect the, the vehicle industry, right? Uh, the energy uh, source of energy, is that correct? Well, the studies that I commissioned um, on solar and wind installations have our standalone studies that assess the market in those respective industries, um, looking at the growth market opportunities um, and seeing the intricacies or the, the um, rollout for the copper industry as well. The energy storage study was also an independent study. These were conducted by Navigant, the three, um, where we looked again at the market of energy storage and, and the intersection of copper as well. So, um, And then we conducted a separate study for electric vehicles looking at the electric vehicle market and, and kind of the, the, the opportunities for the mm-hmm. copper industry. My, my role in my job um, is to, is to uh, take a look at all of these different market assessments as one part of it, really get an understanding of what's going on in these markets, advise my membership um, in the growth and policy positions in the market, and then see opportunities where there's correlation. We're really running out of time, and I would love to continue with this conversation because it is fascinating that you policy at the intersection of technology, and that's what we... Yeah. That's what we should see as uh, see is the the question: where is policy intersect with with industry? So before I, I end uh, our conversation, and I, I want to thank you very much. Uh, I want to say a few things about about uh, Zalika's history. Uh, she's uh, she's has a huge huge background, and it'll be on our on our website, etc. But she's with. Uh, of the Department of Commerce's Renewable Energy Energy Efficiency Advisory Committee, and she uh, is a regular contributor to energy and, and policy publications, uh, including On the Hill, The Washington Times, Electro uh, Industry, Renewable Energy, you could name it, and she's done it. So if anybody knows about policy and energy, that's Zalika. Right, Zalika? Yeah, thank you. Thank you for that. <laughs> for that glowing set of references. Right. Well, I'm sorry again that we have to end this. And if we have a, an energy policy discussion, I hope you will be a part of that too. I, I look forward to it. Thank you so much, Cindy, for your time, and I appreciate the interview. Thank you for tuning in to the Workforce Show. This interview and others can be found at WERA.FM or at careercentralonline.com. Thank you for listening. Until the next time.